Welcome back to the Send 938 podcast, a ministry of Baptist Missions designed to encourage, equip, and inspire the next generation of missionary servants and the churches who will send them. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, Administrator for North American Ministries with Baptist Missions, and I'm joined today by one of our missionaries from the African continent and originally from the UK, but serving under the banner of Baptist Missions, Miss Ruth Kennedy. Good to have you here. Thank you. So the the goal of these missionary interviews, as those who have been listening now for some time may recognize, is to simply introduce our listening audience to our ministry team and to our regions of service. And so uh, I just want to have you talk to us a little bit about uh, where you served, as you've been in a, a few di- different nations in the African continent, and how it is that the Lord took you from the UK to service with an American uh, mission agency overseas again uh, in a country that was once more not your home country at the time. So how, how did all of that transpire? Well, my parents went to Brazil in 1948 as independent missionaries. And while they were there, they met American missionaries. One was ABWE, was the mission, and the other was Baptist Mid-Mission. So they applied to both and they heard from ABWE. And so they served in Brazil as missionaries for 23, 24 years. And then dad felt led to go back to the UK because it had become quite non-Christian compared to Brazil. So they came back to the UK and ABWE was not ready to go into the UK at the time. And so mom and dad joined Baptist Mid-Missions. That was the connection with the American mission boards. Okay. So I grew up in Brazil, came back to the UK to do my nurse's training and midwifery and various other bits and pieces. And then I felt led to go into missions or at least to work full-time as a Christian. I didn't fancy the idea of being a missionary because my parents had been missionaries. And so I felt, well, I'll go to Bible college and study all the things you need to study in a Bible college, and then go back to the UK because I like art, I like music, I like to go to concerts and listen to classical music. So I thought, well, I'll go to Bible college, that will satisfy the Christian component, and then I can come back and minister to people at work. I worked with newborn babies, so it was a really easy job (laughs) because they're newborn babies. So then the Lord spoke to me, and through the Word, he led me to go and spend time in the Republic of Chad while I was at Bible college. And I thought, well, this is a great place. I'll tell my grandchildren about it one day. We had bats in the house we were living in. There were these huge cockroaches, and I thought, well, this is not London. So I thought, well, this would be all right for me to to tell my grandchildren about. And I spent six weeks there, came back, and spent another year at Bible college. And then I thought, well, I'll go back and do a little bit more study. So I went back and did tropical diseases. And and I thought, well, this is good. But then the Lord showed me that I was working for myself. I wasn't working for him. I was looking for comforts that was not his plan for me. And even though I knew I was born again, I knew God had saved me, I knew he'd called me into Christian service, I wasn't fully committed. So I then felt I'll apply to a mission board, a really conservative one, 
like the one that my parents were with, Baptist <laughs> Midmissions, and they'll never accept me. Because <laughs> you liked music and concerts and those yeah, types of things. Yeah. I thought, well, and, you know, I, I preferred wearing trousers to wearing skirts, oh, you know, my. all that sort of thing. So then they did accept me. <laughs> that was November 1980. And then that Christmas... Um, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, and I says, oh, well, that's it. I'll have to go back because Dad will be on his own. He won't be able to manage without me. So I forgot God for a while. Well, Mom died that following year, and Dad said, now, you're going to the mission field, Ruth. Don't worry about me. He will take care of me. And he said, you have to go to language school. So I went to language school the end of Mom did die, and I went to language school and went to France because I thought, well, I'd been to Chad, so I might as well go back to Chad. It seemed like a good place to go. And I went to France and learned French. Before I finished language school, my father wrote to tell me that he'd met this lovely Georgia Peach, and he was planning to marry her. So that took care of that detail. I had to go to Chad now. I was getting ready to go to Chad, and they told me, oh, there's been a war, but it's okay. You're a midwife. You're a medical professional. You can go. It's like we don't die from bullets. So I went to, <laughs> I went to Chad and uh, spent 11 years in Chad working with a small mission hospital in the South, and it was, it was amazing. I really loved it. But I felt the Lord had something else for me. You worked as a midwife there? As a midwife. And I felt that maybe the Lord was leading me to work with the Muslims. So I went and spent a month up in Amtiman, which is a Muslim community, and stayed with the pastor. We'd have to go along to the riverbed and you dig down to find water. It was an interesting experience. No art galleries and no concerts. In fact, Chad didn't have anything like that. But the Lord did teach me that just like when you're camping, sometimes all the stays from your tent collapse, and it's that center stay that's holding you up, holding the tent up, that is the principal pole. And I learned to trust the Lord for anything. After that, it was... I thought, whatever the Lord gives me and asks me to do, I'll do it. And I learned to look for the beautiful in the desert. And I remember going out for a walk. I used to run to begin with, but then it was very hot in Chad. So then I would go for walks. And one day I found a yellow flower in the desert. No grass, no leaves, but this yellow flower, the same color as the sand. And I thought, you know... If we look for God's glory wherever we are, we're going to find it. And I remember that yellow flower that I would have missed if I hadn't been looking for it. I learned to love the Chadian people. And then the Lord burdened me to go to Ethiopia. Out of the blue, we had prayer cells. The young people from Qumra asked me to help them send up, set up prayer cells so we could pray for communist countries. This was in the 1980s, late 1980s. And we had about four prayer cells with young people, and we were praying for communist countries, including Ethiopia. And then the Lord started to burden me for Ethiopia. And I prayed about it and asked the Lord to show and to confirm. And he confirmed with Scripture 
from Joshua chapter 3. He said, be careful to follow the covenant, the uh, Ark of the Covenant very carefully because you've never been this way before. Joshua chapter 3. And I said, well, Lord, if you want me to go, I'm going to have to convince Baptist Midmissions to allow me to go to a country that's just coming out of communism that doesn't allow single missionaries to go and start a new field. So you need to prepare the way. So I did a survey trip, and I really believed the Lord had a ministry for me in the country of Ethiopia. No idea what it was, but I was willing. And so after 11 years in Chad of doing medical work, setting up prayer cells, teaching in the Bible school, working with the kids, setting up Sunday school work, working with Sunday school teachers. I then moved off to go to Ethiopia, but I came to speak with the mission, had to speak to the general council, and they voted unanimously that I could go. On condition, a couple joined me by the end of the year. The end of the year, they had sent different couples out. Nobody wanted to stay. (laughs) So at the end of the period... I had met with the deputy minister of health, and she said, would I go and set up a school for midwives in Ethiopia? We didn't have legal entity there because they weren't encouraging foreign NGOs to come in just yet. And when they did encourage them, they had to come in with about a million dollars ready to spend. Well, I didn't have that kind of money. So I joined the the Ministry of Health as a volunteer as a means of getting in. So I went to the east, which was a town called Harar, one the 10th most Muslim city in the world. So I realized then that that was where the Lord was leading me to work amongst the Muslims. And I was there for two and a half years until there was a, a Danish midwife, also a Christian, who had been killed by the Muslim extremists. And my Christian friends in the country said, Ruth, you need to leave this area and go and live in the capital, which is called Addis Ababa. Addis means new, Ababa means flower, so new flower, Addis Ababa. And I was asked to go and work in the Ministry of Health as a maternal health advisor. So I would, I would volunteer these jobs, and it would enable me to stay in the country. So what did I do for the Lord during this time? Um, there's... More diplomatic missions or embassies in the capital of Addis Ababa than any other capital in the world. So I spoke both French and English. So I had Bible studies with women, and in some cases, men from the different embassies who would come to my home and we would do Bible studies together. I would lead the Bible studies. And then there was a French church fellowship that asked me to help them get a club going for the French speaking children. So we got that started and going. And then after that was completed, um, the Koreans asked if if I would do Bible studies with them. And they would bring their little tape recorders and tape my Bible studies and go home and play it to other people and send it back to Korea. So, you know, the Lord just opened all these doors. I had a full-time job traveling around the country doing maternal health, but also back home I was doing uh, an effective ministry there. That was when I was in Addis Ababa. While I was living in Harar, this Muslim town, I had my students that would come to my house for Bible studies, the ones that wanted it. 
from the Ministry of Health, I was asked to go and I was, I was seconded by the Ministry of Health to work with the Addis Ababa Fistula Hospital, which is a hospital for women with childbirth injuries. I was still in Addis Ababa, still having my Bible studies, working with the kids in Sunday school or Saturday club. But I now had this addi- additional responsibility uh, to help Dr. Catherine Hamlin, who was in her 70s, and we were trying to set up prevention programs throughout the country to prevent childbirth injuries. She also asked me to go around the world to speak on behalf of women with childbirth injuries. For example, I had to go to China to speak at the Miss World pageant. And so when I went, I thought, I'm going into China. I rounded up as many Bibles as I could find, and I went there. And at night, I would have the different ones come knocking on my door saying, we hear you have English books. Do you have one for us? I ended up giving them my own personal Bible And I think I probably had about 23 Bibles. So when I look back on that time in Addis Ababa, um, I can't give you statistics, but I know that lives were touched for for his kingdom and for his glory. Um, So that was the time in in Addis Ababa. While I was at the Fistula Hospital, it went under new management, and I felt that it was time for me to move And what I hadn't realized is that my colleague, Karen, who was working up in Tigray in a children's village, had been praying for three years for me to go and join her because we were transferring the organization of Grace Village, which is where the children's village is, to go from a foreign not-for-profit to a local not-for-profit now, Karen and I both work with Baptist Midmissions, but any of the social work we've done or work with the government, we don't use money for that. So we've had to find outside sources for one running the children's village. And the Dutch government has helped with that because Karen is from Holland. She is still in that area, and the Dutch government helped us build the village. The village... The land was given by the local government, and my colleague Karen is still there, and she's doing a wonderful work with the children. The children come either because they're abandoned or because they're true orphans, and they come and stay with us. But back in the um, around about 2015, there was a UN edict that said that children that have any family should go back to their families. So we had to trace family, and then the children went back. Some of those children went back with the testimony of what they had learned at Grace Village, and they'd sing these songs and the choruses. We'd had a school for special needs kids, and I'll tell you just one story from the special needs kids that subsequently had to close because we didn't have enough students. And her name was Salam, which means peace. And she came to us because she was visually impaired. And so she learned to read Braille. And we were able to get the the Braille Bible in Amharic, which is the local language. And Salam came to know the Lord. And she would go back to her village. There was no electricity. And so she would go and the priest would see her 
with her fingers in the Braille Bible. She, it wouldn't be a whole Bible. It would be just a book because they're huge, big things. And she would start, he says, well, read it aloud to us. There's no electricity. And the blind girl is reading either from the book of John or the book of Mark to this whole community. So for me, when I look back on my life and the lives that have been touched, um, you just never know what God is going to use to change lives. We couldn't go into this village, Kalakal, but Salam could. I couldn't sit down and read a Bible passage to a local Orthodox priest, but Salam could, because she was blind. Mm. And so when I look back on what God is able to do through single missionaries, it's amazing. We knew that we would have to grow our own pastor. We knew that there weren't going to be people willing to go into these hardship places. The lives are too different from life in the West for people to adjust to that. Karen and I, well, I grew up in Brazil. Karen grew up, her father had, father and mother had camping ministry in Holland. So she was used to roughing it. She was used to making do. So there, there are so many things that people have to give up. But when you weigh it in the balance of what you gain, it's, it's no balance. It's, it's a win-win, whatever you're doing. So looking back on the ministry that the Lord has given to people like me and people like Karen is that we come away much richer you reach the ripe old age of 70, satisfied that every day has been worth it. So I missed a few art galleries and a few concerts, but to have been able to see the joy of lives changed. A little nine-year-old boy that came to live at Grace Village, he'd been left at the hospital he went back to see if he could find his, his, his mother, but they said he'd been dressed in a little pink dress. She had made a little shelter to keep the sun off his head. And when he said, he came and told me that, and he said, Mama Ruth, my mother must have loved me. Oh, I said, I'm sure she did. That boy was a strong Orthodox. He wouldn't eat any meat or drink any milk or eat any eggs during the fasting season. And he was staunch, but one time he heard that Jesus loved him, that Jesus didn't lay all these burdens on him, that they were burdens laid on the, by the church. He said, I need to know more about these Jesus, this Jesus. And he had his struggles up and down and had said he was going to either be a doctor or a vet. He got his qualifications from high school and he came in to see Karen. He said, God wants me to be a pastor. So we quickly looked around to see where we could send him. We didn't want to send him abroad. We didn't want him to get that taste for life in the West. So we were able to send him to Ghana, to the Baptist Admissions College in northern Ghana. He went and did four-year studies there. And then he went back to Ethiopia, and he was working with, um, on his master's in biblical counseling 
And recently that's had to stop because of certain events that have happened. But he's been able to use what he's learned for counseling the kids just like him. And he's married Martha, who was one of our girls as well. And they've just had a little baby that they've called, called Mercy because they said it's by God's mercy that they're there. Uh, your your life and ministry has been focused in in medical ministry and and personal care and and the the children's villages. Those, those are all um, those are all representative of of types of ministries that BMM has had globally. But but unlike some other agencies and organizations, our focus is not primarily in medical missions or or orphanage ministries. So. Um, how would you how would you interact with with someone who approaches you about an interest in in serving overseas, but says, "I'm I'm not sure the Lord has called me to be a pastor. Maybe I'm not qualified uh, for that role, uh, but I want to serve the Lord. And here is, here's the skill set that I have. Is there is there room in today's ministry environment for someone to step outside of a church planting role and do effective missionary ministry? And that's a bit of a rhetorical question, but I want you to answer that. Absolutely. In fact, in certain countries, it's probably going to be the only way you can get in and serve in those countries. You take North Africa, the 1040 window. You want to go and work in any of those countries, you go in with a different skill set. I would say anyone wanting to go into a restrictive access nation They have to have some skill. Probably the easiest would be teaching English as a second language. But the other opportunities is opening up an internet cafe. We don't see many in the West anymore because everyone has their phone or their computer. But in countries that are less privileged, you could go in and set up an internet cafe and then one-on-one talk to them about their belief patterns, and then gradually build up friendships. Mechanics that are willing to teach street boys. There's a terrific ministry among street kids. We also work amongst street kids. But a terrific opportunity with street kids as you're, as you're standing over an engine, showing them how to repair a car. You've got, you've got a ready audience, and they'll come. They might try and pickpocket, but, you know, you just don't put any money there or just a few coppers if they happen to take it. Slowly build up those friendships. The opportunity to work amongst the, the girls, the sex workers, that are pitiful because often they're in that ministry or that work because they don't have anything, um, and they may have a child that they're needing to feed, to work with them, um, there's a, an organization in, in Addis Ababa that's called Women at Risk, and they've even started their own fellowship with these women, and they prefer women to lead the services. The, the opportunity for professors to teach in state universities, state high schools, is terrific teaching English, teaching maths, teaching science. You take Ethiopia, high school is all in English, so you can teach any subject. The universities are also in English, but their English is very poor. 
they really need people to help them improve their English. Um, I would say most countries in in Africa, maybe not so much South Africa, but the other countries in Africa, you could get a job, sign on with the government if it's a, a an access a creative access country, sign on with the government. They'll even pay you a small salary. And then you can have Bible studies. What you do in your own home, is it's not their concern, unless you're saying a government housing. So I always recommend rent your own house. <laughs> and, and then you can, you can witness. Um, one of the things I have noticed that if you've got a Muslim, they always have one room put aside as a prayer room. So I always say to people, well, you know, you have your prayer room. I too have my prayer room. So you can just organize yourself to have a prayer room, and you can then minister to people. So mechanics, English teachers, um, probably not so much philosophies. You know, that's not something that would go over terribly well. It's not a major subject. It has to be something practical. Engineers, civil engineers, electrical engineers, technical engineers, um, IT, they love IT, all sort of computer sciences, to go and then you're going in and working with university students. Most of them come from very deprived backgrounds, and you can just open them up to come to your house and find out where they're coming from. When I was in Harar, I would invite both Muslim and Orthodox doctors for a meal, and they eat different foods. You have to go to a different butcher's. So I would prepare Muslim food and Orthodox food, and I would eat from both tables. I would have open Bibles lying all over the place for them to pick up and read. Bible verses on the wall that they could read. That was the decoration in the house, because the Muslims are offended by pictures. and But they could read these verses in the different local languages. So they would hear the gospel. Even if you couldn't speak it to them, they could read it. Um, so the opportunities are, are amazing, just simply living in the country uh, as a believer. But you have to be strong. You need to have a good, good prayer base. Uh, working with um, prostitutes, we used to have a prayer group praying while we were out on the streets. Mm. So, I mean, this just gives you an idea of some of the many opportunities that aren't church planters. And then train up the local people, either do a Paul-Timothy relationship so that the Timothy is the one that's going to plant the church. And as we've been learning, it takes great humility to be in the background. Yeah. Not saying that I'm being humble or anything, but it is a, an important role. You're not going to be pastor so-and-so. You're just Mama Ruth or Joe Bloggs. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, how might uh, someone pray for the needs in Ethiopia? Someone came to you and said, I, I want to pray for Ethiopia for the next year. How, how can you help me understand how to pray for them? There has been conflict, and that's in the news. So we need a resolution. That everybody recognizes. But for the work that's going on now is a prayer that for our pastor, 
his name is Carlos, that the Lord would give him the strength and hope for the future, that we have a small church fellowship, but that this would grow, and it will be through the ministry of this young man. And he has groups out in the countryside. He hasn't been able to visit them, but that they would grow as well, and that more would be raised up to serve with him. There are Christians in Ethiopia, plenty of them, and they're doing an amazing work. So for praying for Ethiopia, peace and the spreading of the word of God uh, throughout the country as a whole. Well, we appreciate that and would encourage anyone listening to uphold those things in prayer as the Lord brings them to your memory in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Ruth, thank you for your time with us today, for your ministry, and for the testimony you've provided here of God's goodness over the years of service to to Him. As always, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at send938 at bmm.org. We'd love to hear from you, and please do leave us a five-star review and a comment on whatever streaming platform you're listening on today that'll help others find this Send 938 podcast, a ministry of Baptist Missions. And we'll see you back here next time.